of Genesis chapter 48. Please, if you would, remain standing for the reading of God's holy inspired word. We will consider the entire chapter this morning. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your descendants and after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine. But your offspring that you are that that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers and in in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padam, Rachel died to my sorrow. In the land of Canaan, on the journey, when there was still time or still distance to go to Ephrathath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrathath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim, with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh, with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his hand, his right arm, his right hand, excuse me, and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been a shep- my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, right in. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. 
Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and bow. This is God's holy inspired word. Uh, Join me in prayer, please. Our gracious God and Father, our precious Lord Jesus Christ, and our ever-present Holy Spirit, our Helper, be with us now as we consider your holy word. Help us to learn all that you have uh, decreed for us to know and understand. And Lord, give us minds that understand. Give us hearts that believe and ears that hear your word. God, I decrease so that you may increase, be glorified for Christ's sake and for the good of your people, we pray. Amen. Please be seated, saints. Well, I do uh, greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is uh, wonderful to be with you all uh, again on this Lord's Day, Sabbath morning, as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. Uh, We come now to the 48th chapter of the book of Genesis. There are only, as you know, Two more chapters left in this magnificent book. For many months now, with God's help, we have examined the life and journey, the sojourning of Jacob, this man of faith. We've been given eyes to see the patriarch move from swindler and grasper to prince of God who overcomes with God. I do wonder, though, in all that we have learned about Jacob, in all of his sojournings that we have, in a sense, been able to walk with him on, if you were to highlight one moment in the life of Jacob that stands out to you as the greatest act of faith in his life, what moment would you choose? If you were to examine out of all of the months and weeks that we've been examining the life of Jacob and highlight one moment that you would say is the greatest act of faith in the life of Jacob, What moment would you choose? Would you highlight maybe the 28th chapter when Jacob was given a vision from God of angels ascending and descending on the earth? In faith, Jacob arose early the next morning and and built a place of worship there, calling it Bethel, the house of God. Or maybe you might highlight the 32nd chapter when Jacob, maybe the one most people turn to, when Jacob all night contended with God. Their grappling match that lasted from uh, the darkest of night to the break of morning. 
it culminated in Jacob saying to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And it was there that Jacob received a new name and a new limp or a new walk. Reminding him every step that he took that he overcomes with God. We might acknowledge that there are many inspiring moments of exemplary faith displayed by Jacob. But when it comes to the most grand moment in the life of faith in Jacob's life, God himself actually tells us what the apex of his life of faith was. God himself tells us the the Mount Everest of all of the acts of Jacob's faith. He tells us which one was the Mount Everest of them all. And he tells us so in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Would you turn there, please? Hebrews chapter 11. And in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 21, the Lord God uh, gives us an account of the most faith-filled moments in the lives of God's elect throughout redemption history. The inspired writer of the book of Hebrews is walking through a field of faith, as it were, and plucking and picking out the loveliest flowers of faith to hold up and to display for his readers to admire. And when he comes to the life of Jacob, the flower of faith that he picks out of all of the flowers is this. By faith, verse 21, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph And worshipped, leaning on top of his staff. Brothers and sisters, the apex, uh, the greatest act of Jacob's life of faith is displayed for us here in this 48th chapter. Uh, This chapter, which is seldom preached, this chapter, which is seldom discussed, is highlighted not by you and not by me, but by God as being the crowning moment of faith in the life of Jacob. While Jacob was on his deathbed, he rises and he worships God on his staff. Let me ask you, what is so significant about this act that this moment would be placed, inserted into the hall of faith, if you will, of all of God's elect. This act of faith, it takes place at the very end of Israel's life. Uh, this, pl- this act of faith takes place when the sun was setting on the life of this patriarch. As the sun was going down on his life. His final words were not words of regret. As he is on his deathbed, uttering his final words, they are not words of fear. They're not words of doubt and uncertainty. 
the best wine, if you will, is saved for last. His best days were not behind him. They were in front of him, even while he was on his deathbed. Israel does not crash and burn in his final moments. But he rises. He rises to great heights in the final moments of his life. And I do believe that there is much for our instruction here in these verses this morning. And so then with God's help, we shall consider two points this morning concerning Israel's greatest act of faith. Israel's greatest act of faith. That will be the title. Number one, Israel worshipped. This is verses one through seven. And get the scene, if you will, that many of us have been in these predicaments when our loved ones are on their dying beds and in their dying moments. Joseph was informed then that his father was approaching the end of his days. The Lord had been so very kind to Jacob, not only restoring the son of his love, the son whom he believed he was dead, but also granting him 17 more years to enjoy with his restored son. And what is more, the Lord has allowed Jacob to see the children of his beloved son, Joseph. He said in verse 11 of chapter 48, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. And that is, I think, a prayer for many of us. And I think we mentioned this a week or two ago, that not only do we want to see our children blessed, but we would love to see our children's children blessed, to see them grow in the knowledge and fear of God. And Jacob, Jacob has been afforded that great blessing from God. God has been so very kind to Jacob. And we are told in the 47th chapter that the time for Israel to die drew near. These two chapters, 47 and 48, toward the end of them, they are closely connected in terms of, of time and chronology. Joseph comes to his aged and uh, life-failing father. And when he comes to his father, he brings his two sons with him, Ephraim and Manasseh. And what we have here in this 48th chapter is the last recorded conversation between Joseph and his beloved father, Jacob. Now, contrary to popular assumption, the sons of Joseph were not little boys. Seventeen years have passed since the reunion of Jacob and Joseph, which would have made Joseph a man in his late 50s, between 55 and 60. Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, they would have therefore been most likely 18 to 21 years old. They were young adults. And we are here given a beautiful picture of faith and strength. For when Jacob is told that Joseph has arrived, we see him doing something in faith. Verse 2. When it was told to Jacob, behold, listen to the wording here, to told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you. 
Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty has appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And dear brothers and sisters, let us not pass these verses as if the scriptures are not intending to teach us something very important about this point. Notice there in verses 2 and 3, we are told in the beginning, Jacob was told that Joseph had come. And then in the very next verse, we are told Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. And in the very next verse, Jacob said, do you see this, this interchanging of Jacob and Israel? They are the same person. For those of you who are maybe wondering, what's the, the big deal? They are the same person. Israel is Jacob. Jacob is Israel. What are the scriptures then communicating to us, the people of God? Well, I think the purpose of the interchanging of the names of Jacob and Israel They are to show us that one last time, one last time, Jacob will be given a thorough examination. It it is, if you will, his final, final exam. There is one last grappling match in this man of faith. Jacob, no, was not wavering in faith in God, not at all. But there is a grappling match between his flesh. The flesh of this aged and ill man. And the vibrant soul of Israel that lives within him. His aged body, as all of our aged bodies will at some point do, it seemed to be empty of strength. His aged body seemed to be void of power in every muscle, every bone weak and feeble, the sight of the eye dim and hazy. Let me say to you young people, you see well now, there will come a time, and I'm experiencing it, which is why when I read on Sunday mornings, Brother Anthony, I sometimes can't And make mistakes. The eye is going dim. The body is becoming weak. He is an old man. Death was at his doorstep. And he was facing his last thorough exam. Death will be at all of our doorstep at one point or another. And we will be faced with the same examination of Jacob. But while Jacob was aged... While Jacob's body was weak, Israel was vibrant and strong. We are told Israel collected his strength and sat up. Not Jacob. Israel collects his strength. Jacob has no strength. But Israel, the one who is connected to God, the one who has been made a prince of God, the one who contends with God and overcomes with God, he collects his strength. Why? Because God gives Israel strength. He stands up. And what a beautiful phrase. Israel collected his strength and sat up. It's one last final display of faith. It's one last final display of confidence. One last final display of power. Jacob would lie down, but Israel would sit up and prophesy. Jacob was on the edge 
of the eternal promised land. But before he steps into that land, Israel turns back one last time and prophesies to his people. This would be his final act. And dear ones, it is very hard, very, very hard to maintain a lie in the presence of the last solemnities of life. And the end is usually the, the end of self-deception. Go to those who are on their deathbed. I don't know if I've done enough. I'm not sure if I'm going to be saved. Uh, the, the, they would call a priest to come and give them their final rites just so that they can be sure. All false assurance is gone. All mimics of faith are gone at that moment. That which is often held up under ordinary heats of trial. It is eliminated. It evaporates when the fires of death surround it. Oh, the, the martyrs who have gone before us, who when they were uh, tied to those wooden stakes, they did not cry for their lives, but they cried that God would have mercy upon those who were burning them at the stake. And there were those men and those women even, who when they were being burned, prayed out to God, sang hymns of prayer to God. Faith was revealed by fire. And your and my faith is revealed in fire. And it will be most revealed when we stand before the, the, the borders of heaven and hell. As the light begins to dim on his life, the faith of Israel radiated like the noonday sun. The reality of death will not quench his faith in God Almighty. It only increases his faith in God Almighty. Though the body of Jacob becomes increasingly weak, the Lord strengthens the soul of Israel one last time. And he, we are told that he sits up. And in Hebrews, we are told that he worshiped on his staff. In Genesis, we are only told he sits up. But you've got to read the whole Bible to understand it all right. Because Hebrews gives us more insight into what Jacob does. He does not just sit up. He sits up and he grabs his staff. Uh, that that lifelong companion, his staff, and he worships on top or as, as he's leaning upon his staff. 147 years old, sits up in his bed. Not only does he sit up, he uses his staff to prop himself up. And then he leans upon that lifelong companion to worship God. Dear saints of God, will... Your final moments be one of worship and one of praise or one of despair and fear. The staff, a lifelong companion of who? Of sojourners, not of settlers. Those who were settling did not carry staffs around. The life of a sojourner was one that had a present and eternal companion, the staff. And the staff of the Hebrew often recorded momentous moments in their lives. And they would make these markings on their staffs of important moments in their lives. You could read the staff of a Hebrew sojourner and it would be a journal of his life. Israel did not just lean upon his staff for support. But as his son Joseph and his soon to be adopted sons enter the room, he sits up. 
And he uses that lifelong companion, the one that testifies to the the goodness and the mercy and the protection of God. And he uses it to to prop himself up and to worship upon it. It's most likely that this staff was with him when he sojourned throughout Canaan with his father, Isaac, and mother, Rebekah. It would have been the staff that accompanied him when he ran away from home to escape the anger of Esau. It would have been the same staff that was with him when he wrestled with God all night long. And it would have been the staff that upheld him when he, after that wrestling match, then walked with a limp. He would lean upon that staff. It was the staff that was by his bed when he was told that Joseph is dead. And it would have been the staff that would have been right by him when he was told, Joseph yet lives. And now, as he is preparing to cross the spiritual Jordan, Israel collects his strength, sits up and worships on his staff. The constant reminder that you, dear Jacob, you worm, you are headed heavenward. It was as if he was saying, give me my staff. I die with it in my hand as a protest that I am not a resident here. I will only linger a little while longer. We see men and and women, don't we, who walk with the cane. It's their cane of support. It's their cane that upholds them. Israel collects his strength and he sits up in his bed. He is more royal between the sheets of his bed than at the door of his tent. He was greater in the hour of weakness than in the day of his power. And he worships and begins to recount the goodness of God and the kindness of God. In verse 3, he says, God appeared to me at Luz. God appeared to me. God blessed me. And, and he's not, Jacob, a senile man. You know some of those whom you love who tell you stories, and when they begin to tell you the story, you say, you've, you've told me that story already. Mom, Dad, you, this is the third time you're telling me that now. No, Jacob is not senile. He's not telling the same story two and three more times. He is recounting the goodness and the kindness of God as a way of testimony before he exits this world. As a way of proclaiming one last time, To his sons, God is good. God is kind. God has been faithful. He testifies that God has appeared to him and blessed him in grafting him into the Abrahamic covenant. God has taken this man who was not the firstborn and given him all of the benefits and all of the rights that belong to the firstborn. God has given this worm, this swindler, this trickster, Jacob, he has given him all of the benefits that he did not deserve. Esau would have been the inheritor of the covenant blessings if it was Isaac's way. But God had determined in his will and in his sovereignty that Jacob would be the one who received the blessing. For God has said, Jacob, I have loved and Esau, I have hated. God has determined who he will grant the right to his covenant blessings. God has engrafted this worm, this Jacob, into the great promises of building a nation, giving him a land, 
and raising out from him one that will bless all the nations, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he begins to think of the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God, uh, the, uh, the grace that was given to this undeserved wretch, he worships God on his staff. He will later say, God has been my shepherd. All the days of my life, God has been leading me. Even in times when I went astray, God, being the good shepherd that he is, has always found me and brought me back into his fold. He says, the angel has delivered me from all evil. It has been God who has guided him by day. God who has guided him by night. He is able to speak like the psalmist of Psalm 23. And you know it by heart, don't you? He's able to say with David, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want He's able to say he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. He makes or for his name's sake. Even though I walk, he says, through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows surely at the end of his life. David is able to say surely, surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forevermore. Don't you want that to be your prayer? Don't you want that to be your words? God has been my shepherd. God has protected me from all evil. And even though I thought some things were evil and difficult and hard, only goodness and mercy have followed me. I will dwell in the house of the Lord. I am going to the eternal city and I will be there forever. Is that your confidence this morning, saints? If it is, then the appropriate response is worship. Dear saints, are you able to say with this man of God, Jacob, God has been my shepherd. God has delivered me from all kinds of evil. God has revealed himself to me even when I was not searching for him. God has engrafted me into his covenant. We were the wild olives that God grafted into being partakers of this tree of God's covenant blessings. What's our appropriate response? Worship. Worship to God. Exalt his name, the scriptures say. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, the scriptures say. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise His holy name, the the Bible says. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours, the Bible says. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. My mouth, the psalmist says, is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all All day long. How great you are, sovereign Lord, the Bible says. There is no one like you, the Bible says. There is no God but you, the Bible says. As we have heard with our own ears, the Bible says. Dear saints, do we worship God this way? Do your prayers sound anything like that? Are your inmost thoughts, your inmost feelings, are are they sounding, resounding, any of these things that we have just said. 
Hasn't God been so good to you? Oh, whether you know it or not, goodness and mercy, they have followed you all the days of your life. All the days of your life. And if that's you this morning, then I implore you, gather up your strength, sit up and worship God. Sit up and recognize that all these things are not against you. But if God before you, then who can be against you? We can say with the 27th Psalm, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my defender. Whom shall I dread? It is because God has revealed himself to you. He has opened your eyes, opened your hearts, opened your ears to things that you never would have opened them to. And we are even here this morning. Oh, God, let our response be to sit up and to worship God. Isn't he worthy of it? Isn't he deserving of it? You have been created for worship. And worship is perfected. Praise is perfected in the mouth of his children. Worship him, saints. Jacob is at the very end. And rather than being in despair, his mouth is full of praise. And he's not recounting the covenant blessings of God simply to remind Joseph. Joseph has brought his children because Jacob, through the word of God, is being used to engraft those children into these covenant blessings. Let's go to our second bless, our second point, Israel's blessing. This is the remaining verses of the chapter, Israel's blessing. Israel was rallied to stand as he does, to sit up. And as he does, he thinks on God's covenant, the blessing of God. Here is this man who so often did not say enough. Who often did not lead enough. Who so often did not teach enough to his children. But here he is at the end of his days, by the grace of God, taking the lead. And it's a beautiful picture here of a formal adoption of Manasseh and Ephraim. He is adopting them formally as his own sons. This is in verse 5. Let's actually read that very briefly. Genesis chapter 48 and verse 5. Jacob says, Now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And let us not overlook the the beauty in this short verse. Jacob is not requesting that the sons of Joseph be his. Jacob is prophesying and telling Joseph, your sons are no longer your sons. They are my sons. They are my sons in the same way that Reuben and Simeon, his first and second born, are my sons. They shall carry my name. Imagine that. Imagine someone in your family saying, your kids are not your kids. They're now mine. And there is no protest in Joseph's mouth. For Joseph understands the covenant of God 
and what his father, by the grace and mercy of God, is doing. It's not an aggressive uh, offense toward Joseph. It is a wonderful blessing towards Joseph. It's not going to be as though Manasseh and Ephraim are his sons. And it's not going to be, uh, they will be like the sons of Israel. They would legitimately belong to Israel and they would be his children. They would be considered as one tribe. Ephraim and Manasseh. This, what we read then, is a formal adoption and would therefore guarantee the earthly blessings of the covenant of Abraham given to these Manasseh and Ephraim. They would be circumcised according to the covenant. They would be given a portion of the land according to the covenant. They would be named among the tribes of Israel and among the sons of Jacob. Israel enters into this formal right of adoption. And it's what we're witnessing here. In verse number eight, we see the question asked, who are these? And we may say to ourselves, well, maybe Jacob is senile because he's already been introduced to these boys and they've been around for at least 18 to 21 years. Does he not know his own grandchildren? Well, he knows exactly who they are. The question, who are these? is the beginning of the formal ceremony of adoption. It's just like the ceremony of, of a marriage. Who gives this woman to this man? It is the beginning of the formal ceremony of a covenant. Bring them forward that they may be blessed. And then they are placed, if you notice, at the knees of Jacob. Why are these young men brought to their knees before their now father, Jacob. It was a symbol. It was a symbol of Jacob symbolically giving birth to these two boys. The way birth was given in those times was on knees. And here is Jacob sitting before his two sons and they are brought to his knees and it is symbolically to represent that they are now his in this formal ceremony of adoption. In distributing to these two grandchildren his blessing, he takes them away from Joseph and says, they are now mine as my two sons are mine. Now, this is very important because we must remember who these two young men were. These two sons of Joseph, were raised differently than the sons of Israel, weren't they? They were not shepherds. They were not countrymen like the sons of Jacob. They were distinguished gentlemen. They were raised to be educated in the ways of Egypt. But because they presumably had a good father who taught them the ways of his fathers, they would know both sides. They would know Egypt and they would know Israel. And now they are at a crossroads as young men. Will you go the way of Egypt or will you go the way of Israel? Do you know who their mother was? She was a princess, the daughter of Potiphera, a priest of On. That means their grandfather on their mother's side was an Egyptian priest. The priest of Egypt were the highest class of all. Uh, they were those who had been given land even by the king of Egypt. 
and whose land was not to be touched because they were the nobility of all Egypt. But Jacob shows his faith in God. By ignoring all of their worldly advantages, by ignoring all of the side of Egypt that is, earthly speaking, a part of them. And he calls these young men to take part in the advantages provided by God in the covenant of Abraham. He says to Joseph, they are not yours. I do not know them as Egyptians. I forget all about their mother's rank and their mother, their mother's family. They had attract, attractive prospects before them. Uh, they could be made priest of an idol temple. They could ray, be, ray, be raised or rise to high dignities in Egyptian life. But all of that glitter, we are calling them to reject. All of the pleasures of Egypt, we are calling them to turn away from. And now they are mine. And as my sons, I am calling them to follow the one true God. And to forsake all of Egypt. They can be like their brother, Moses. Who when Hebrews describes his greatest act of faith, what, what would it be? What, what would be Moses' greatest act of faith if you were to read through the life of Moses? Was it the... the Putting the staff in the water and causing it to turn to blood. Uh, would it be Moses before the burning bush? Going when God said go. Or would it be Moses? Being used by God. I'm sure this would be all of ours to part the Red Sea. The book of Hebrews gives us the apex of Moses' act of faith. And here it is. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up. Refused to call himself Pharaoh's daughter, son, or the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater than the riches and greater than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to a different reward. That was his greatest act of faith. I am not an Egyptian, or I am not of this world. Israel was calling his sons to do the same. Reject Egypt as your home. Reject the passing pleasures of sin. Take on the name of Christ by uniting yourself to the covenant made with my father. What a vision this must have been for Joseph. Seeing his father, bringing his sons into this family, and giving them the right to the covenant blessings of God. And Joseph gives his sons to his father. Take them. His hope is that his sons would be given over to Yahweh. Rather than to the king of Egypt. And you parents. You are going to have to give your sons and your daughters up to God. You are going to have to at one point or another. Call them to choose. It is either going to be Egypt or it's going to be Israel. Which path will you take? And let me say to you, it does not just uh, begin here on Sunday and then not continue throughout the week. It is all through the week, calling them to Israel, calling them to the covenant, calling them to worship God alone. 
Everything that you do will be for that final moment in your life where you will be on your bed or wherever it may be. And they will be able to hear and remember that you prophesied to them. That you said to them, follow God. Follow God. But let me say to you, parents, it must be exemplified in your life as well. So many times our children will only follow what they've seen. Show them Christ. Show them the way. Point to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So that at the end, they will not be wondering, now where do I go? They will know where to go. They will know where to go. They will know to whom they belong to. There will be no confusion. Jacob does this by faith. And only by faith could this man really give a blessing. Uh, Lay your eyes upon him once more. He was too feeble to leave his bed. His eyes, like his father Isaac before him, weak and dim. He's unable to bestow a blessing. Blessed be by the power of God who lives within him. And yet he does bless. And therefore we feel sure that that there must be an inner man within that old feeble Jacob. Working works that he could never work on his own. There must be a spiritual Israel hidden away inside of him. Israel who, by prevailing with God, obtained the blessing of God and is, and, and is able to dispose it to those whom God is calling into his kingdom. Amen. Jacob would not have given this blessing if God was not calling these boys into the kingdom. This was not uh, infant baptism. He was not giving these boys something that God was not giving them. He was calling them to faith. And by faith, they would receive it. He rises to the dignity of a king in his final days. He rises to the dignity of a prophet, of a priest. And as he begins to pronounce a blessing on these two grandchildren, speaking by, by faith what God has said, he is believing that God would justify every single word that he is uttering, every blessing that he is giving to his children. That God would answer his prayer of blessing. And as he pronounces blessing on his grandchildren. It is as if it is a petition before God of mercy. And he has faith that God would answer. Jacob in faith speaks about Canaan. As if Canaan was already his own. He foresees, foresees, foresees tribes growing out into nations. As much as if they were already in actual possession of the country. He neither has a ground in Palestine. And yet he considers it all his own. Because God Almighty has pronounced it to belong to him and to his fathers and to his descendants. He adopts these children that stand before him. But notice what happens. During this adoption ceremony, here is this this old and weak and feeble man given strength by God to stand. And when the uh, ceremony of adoption and blessing begins, Joseph takes his sons and he places the eldest son on his right hand side and places his youngest son on his left hand side because the right hand will be placed on the one whom God would bless. And the left hand will be placed on the one who would not receive the greater inheritance. Uh, 
But as Israel lifts up those old and feeble arms, he crosses his hands. Unable to see. Strength is weak. And yet he takes his right hand and places it on the younger son. And takes his left hand and places it on the older son. Jacob goes against all of the traditions from the Nile and Euphrates. He puts the right hand of blessing on the one reserved for the firstborn, Ephraim. And the left hand on the one who was not deserved. Manasseh. Do you notice Joseph's response? The scriptures say that it displeased him. He's watching his old father cross his hands and he's frustrated. He's exasperated. He is uh, displeased at his father's uh, action. So much so that he attempts to take this old man's hands and remove them from the heads of the sons that he chose. But he could not remove his hands. His father resisted him. He says, Joseph says to his father, not so, father, for this one is the firstborn. You're making a mistake. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused. And isn't it beautiful that the way he says it, he says, I know my son. I know. I know that this doesn't make sense. I know that he is supposed to be the second rate, that there is not supposed to be a blessing for this one. I know, and it doesn't make sense to me either. I'm not so blind that I can't see what's happening. I'm not like my father Isaac, who did not know whom he was blessing. You remember Isaac, though his eyes were dim, he was deceived by the one who was now blessing His father did not know who he was blessing. If it would have been up to Isaac, Isaac would have said, I will not give you blessing, uh, uh, Jacob. And it's the very reason why God used Jacob to deceive his father. His father would have never given the blessing to Jacob. It would have always been to Esau, Esau being the son of his love. But here is old Jacob. Eyes just as dim. Body just as weak. And yet he knows. He is being used by God to bless the younger rather than the older. Manasseh was not like Esau. There was no reason why Manasseh should not receive the blessing of the firstborn. So then why? Why does God choose anyone? Why does God choose anyone? Think about your life. Think about even the way you were conceived. What were our parents when we were conceived? What right and blessing do you have that you should be part of the kingdom of God? Now think about your life as far back as you can go. What have you done in your life that deserves and is worthy of you being a part of the kingdom and covenant of God? What have you done? Oh, this speaks of the sovereignty of God. 
He will choose whom He chooses. It's what God does over and over and over again, isn't it? In the book of Genesis, the sovereign grace of God, it can't be tamed. It can't be controlled. It humbles human wisdom. It exalts the unlikely. The last are often first. The first are often last. Abel the younger, chosen over Cain the older. Isaac the younger, chosen over Ishmael the older. Jacob over Esau. Joseph over Reuben. And now Manasseh, or Ephraim over Manasseh. The blessing does not come by a natural descent or human work or activity. It's not by the will of man, but by the will of God. It is God's choice whom he will choose. And that's, that's the wonderful, surprising good news of the gospel, isn't it? God surprise, God makes surprising choices. And it is, if you will, it is God's cross-handed theology. No one is put beyond the pale of God's sovereign grace. There are no hopeless cases with God. No matter how you were conceived, no matter what your upbringing, God can bring even those most unlikely into His kingdom and use them for His glory. There is no sinner Who can say, there's no room for me. God, you know what I've done. Do you know my parents? Do you know even my thoughts now? There is room for every second born. Every second rate. Every sinner. This is a faithful saying and worthy to be accepted, Paul said. That Christ came to seek and to save sinners. Of whom I am the chief. The, the crossing of hands points us to God's, God's Son. Because on the cross, God the Father crossed His hands, didn't He? His left hand upon His Son. And His right hand of blessing upon you and me. Dear believer, He who knew no sin became sin. So that we might be made the righteousness of God. God went further. (coughs) He forsook His Son. And He put His curse, our curse, upon Him. The Gospel is about crossed hands of God. So that His Son would be cursed and we Ephraims would be blessed. The cross is steeped in this cross-handed theology. And and we are tempted to say, No, Lord, uh, take your hand off and put it on someone else who deserves it far more than me. We often are like Peter who say, Far be it from you, Lord. And And we, like Peter, try to wrench God's hand away. But God says, I know, my son. I know. It's my will. It's my way. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. There is room. For every sinner in God's cross-handed theology. I know, I know it doesn't make sense. But this is the way. And we must bow. Jacob won't change his mind. He bows to God's will. He will not trust in his own plans. He casts his anchor into the will of God forever. Again, Isaac would have reversed the blessing if he could. 
But Jacob will not. No matter how much it, it displeased his most beloved son. Son, I love you more than, I love God more than you. And here is what God says. And here he is at the end of his life. Fulfilling God's will and completely submitting to it. That's why this moment is recorded for us in the book of Hebrews. Notice that Ishmael or Israel manifested his faith by his distinct reference to redemption. He alone has faith that God will redeem his children. He says this, Israel prayed, the angel which redeemed me from all evils, bless the lad, may he who redeemed me redeem them. Let your faith bring down, pour down upon your children. And may they share in the redemption that you have been afforded. This is my prayer for you. May the God who redeemed you redeem them. If they are washed in the blood of Jesus, they will be reconciled in the blood of His Son or by the blood of His Son. If they have access to God by the atonement, then may you die well satisfied. May the one who redeemed you redeem them and deliver them from all evil. What a wonderful prayer that is. Now I die, he says. May God be with you. Carry on. Onward and upward. May you take this torch of faith and run with it with all your might. Say that to your children. I pray that this would be your attitude when even your elders from this church pass from this life to the next. That we will not sit around and stand around and say, what do we do now? That you will take all that you have heard by faith and run with it by faith. No matter who passes, the Lord will build. He will abide with and secure His church. The truth shall not die. God forbid it. But it will be upheld. Just like it has been upheld all of these centuries. One saint dies and another one stays, rises, and perseveres. The truth was mighty before the best of men lived. And when they are carried away to their resting place, the truth will not be buried with them. The truth remains youthful. It remains vibrant. It remains always in its prime. It's always full of life, always full of vigor. It draws fresh advocates to stand and proclaim with boldness, our God lives. Let us worship Him. Saints, I pray that we would be people like Jacob at the end of our lives. Not fearful, but worshiping on our staffs. Let's pray.